Welcome to Sessions by Monster Chats. Sessions is a new kind of show for us where we ditch the script and instead dig into the real stories behind the people in our professional lives. How do we all come together in this world of entrepreneurship, sales, and unified communications? One session at a time. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Michael Miller. Michael and I are going to be talking about finance, investing, and the war on drugs. I'm Colin Mitchell, the host of Monster Chats and your founder of Monster VoIP. Michael has a 30, uh, was a 30-year Wall Street attorney and money manager. Michael became a cannabis patient after getting off opiates, which threw him into the cannabis arena. Michael, welcome to Monster Chats. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Mr. Monster. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for hopping on here. Appreciate it. Um, just let's jump right in and tell me a little bit about your story of how you got into Wall Street and then kind of what happened. Uh, well, Wall Street was easy. I'm um, wanting to make my father proud as the firstborn Jewish kid. <laughs> not, not doing anything I wanted to. Um, that's a much longer story over scotch. But uh, I studied in New York. I uh, took the New York bar. Um, visited a friend in California, had never seen a palm tree and said, shit, I took the wrong bar. Um, had already accepted a job, went back, worked a bunch of years, and then had the biggest uh, New York firm with an LA office scoop me up and pay my bills to get my butt out here. Oh, wow. Uh, so you must have been, uh, that must, you must have been excited to make that move and uh, get into the nice weather, huh? I was. I was very excited. I mean, California was like something I had never seen before. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, so uh, it was a long way from Cincinnati. And what was your what was your transition like of uh, moving to Southern California? You know, on the uh, on the business side, it was about the same. You know, uh, um, the Wall Street work ethic is the Wall Street work ethic, even though if Wall Street has moved to another city or country, um, you know, exhausting hours. A uh, tremendous amount of backstabbing, no life, the usual, although good money. But you don't have any, I always tell everybody you never have the opportunity to spend the money. So you save a lot of money until you get divorced and then give it to your ex-wife. So. <laughs> wow. A lot to look forward to, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me, uh, how long did you stay at that job and kind of, you know, where did your career go from there? Yeah, sure. So I practiced law for 30 years. I I left big firm shop, Wilkie and Skadden, uh, then morphed uh, into a big uh, L.A. firm called Al Schuler, my practice growing internationally. And then uh, I got married late, wanted to get off the hourly treadmill, never fun doing anything by the hour, whether you're a CPA or a plumber or a lawyer. Um, so I, I was looking to change my lifestyle a bit. So I was fortunate to get a a managing director position in one of the leading um, money management firms that oversaw about $5 billion for 300 wealthy um, families and foundations and many uh, celebrities and entertainers. So got in there, um, got my licenses, um, trained with the best. And ironically, um, I started a month before the 2008 market crash. So mm. it was, I was really lucky because I signed a contract, a two-year binding contract, and I for sure would have been fired if I didn't have that because there was no business. So I was blessed. I had about two years to get a PhD in finance, um, built my own business after that. Um, that 
the company was bought by a large Canadian firm. I didn't want to sign a non-competition agreement and went over to uh, of one of the U.S.'s largest institutions, Northern Trust Company. Uh, Bob Graziano was the managing director. Then he took a job as the president of the L.A. Dodgers, and uh, they recruited me to fill his seat. So did that a bunch of years until I left for personal reasons, which we'll get into momentarily. Yeah, so... So tell me, what was that like joining that firm, like right before 2008, probably excited about the new, you know, the new role and then everything just crumbling? Yeah, you know, it was, um, it was interesting, but it was almost like I, I would say almost like I am now in many cases when I'm a journalist, I'm, I'm there, but I'm an outsider. Um, I didn't have any clients, so none of their portfolios went down in value. I didn't have any clients, so I didn't get paid on a commission. I had a fixed, agreed salary for two years. And I had a contract, so there was zero risk of getting fired. I mean, an incredible place. So it actually was the best two years as far as not having to stress about uh, paying the bills or getting clients or having the stress of what will be in the bank account next month. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a great experience. You know, I could really focus on just learning um, and not dealing with clients, which is, you know, pretty unprecedented. So what are some of the biggest learning, um, you know, lessons that you, you obtained while there during that time? Oh, that's a, that's a really big question because um, it's so broad. Um, well, the first challenge for me was um, moving from law to finance. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's traditionally very difficult for a lawyer to move into business. They say that most lawyers are not great businessmen. Um, I joke that I became a corporate lawyer instead of a litigator because I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> and because I had a, a pretty good business background, I'd done mergers and acquisitions and finance. And I, you know, I was reading the Wall Street Journal when I was 11 um, to try and ask my, answer my father's questions. I had a pretty good business basis. So the knowledge wasn't that much of a transition, but the, uh, the mentality, you know, um, mm. When, I, when you're a lawyer, you can control outcome to a degree on the corporate side, at least. Basically, you're, you're getting paid a lot of money to write something, you know, a contract, an agreement of some kind. And usually those are signed or the agreement is fulfilled. When you're in finance, you don't know what's going on day one, day two. If the market goes up, you don't get a thank you from your clients. If the market goes down, you get yelled at by your clients. So it was kind of a lose-lose situation. I mean, a, a great way to make short-term money. But for me, it was, just wasn't intellectually stimulating enough. It was, you know, basically uh, a high-paid, well-titled sales job. I said, you know, I joked, uh, I, was, I just carried a wheelbarrow around town, you know, tried to fill it up each day with as much money as I could. Dumped it off and then went to back to work doing the same thing the next day. Uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I was, I was, you know, glad to move on from there. All right. So then, talk, talk to me about the next transition of of where you went next and and what happened there. Uh, transition to Northern was uh, was a good one. Um, that involved a lot of skills, so I could also use some of my legal skills because I oversaw about uh, two point five billion of of wealth but I also had a banking department and a trust and estates department working underneath me, which I oversaw. So 
the intellectual uh, element of it, the questions, the challenges were much more. Um, so I did that for a bunch of years until I had um, my third accident. Mm. Tell us about that. Well, you know, as you recall and mentioned earlier, um, I've had a interesting scenario with automobiles and not necessarily mine in 90 I was hit walking as a pedestrian and broke about a third of the bones in my body. Um, major spinal surgery and learning to walk again, which took almost two years. Very traumatic. Um, but most important with that is that July of 1990, I took the first pill of over 27,000 pills over a 25-year period um, for chronic pain. Um, Six years later, I was literally carjacked in Brentwood um, and beaten at gunpoint with more issues and then more pain, and the pills just continued. Um, I took them with my vitamins every day, so I wasn't addicted, addicted, but probably psychologically addicted, and no doctor in 25 years ever said, Michael, maybe there's another way. And then about six years ago, I was rear-ended by a texter going about 40 miles an hour that threw out all the prior surgeries, the pins, the metal, the plates, was nearly oh. paralyzed right side of my body. And it was uh, probably the worst pain of all of them just because of everything I'd gone through. Um, that required more spinal surgery, um, three uh, uh, vertebras replaced, spinal fusion through the neck, uh, neck brace for six months. And that's when my life really changed. I, I was on disability at Northern. Um, a dear friend had me come over and said, we got to get you off the, uh, the pills. And I said, I'd love to, but there's no alternative. He said, let's try something. So he um, put an um, eyedropper full of a very, very bitter tasting fluid under my tongue. I just did it to you know, support him as my friend, never thinking anything would happen. And literally in 40 minutes, he said, are you okay? I said, yeah, why? He said, I think there's tears coming on your face. And I wiped my face, realized I was subconsciously crying because in the first time in 25 years, I didn't feel pain not taking a pill. Um, wow. It was a, a life-changing experience for me um, in many ways, physically, psychologically, physiologically, emotionally. Um, I went home. I flushed all my pills. I've never done another pill but an Advil. Um, and I became a, a, a passionate, angry advocate, lobbyist, and caregiver in the cannabis space. And I was a guy at 53 years old who had never smoked weed in his life. So I was a pretty good story. I had mm. the intellectual credibility. I wasn't your typical stoner. Um, and I wasn't taking it then to get high. I was taking it to relieve pain and suffering. Now, of course, there were times that I did and still do, and I think it's the greatest plant in the world. But I take three tinctures a day. I take one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening. And they're balanced with both you know, sativa or indica based upon what I need to do during the day, creative focus. It doesn't affect my train of thought. doesn't make me dizzy. doesn't make me stupid. doesn't make me want to lie on a couch all day. And as we get to post-dinner, that's exactly what happens, and that's what I want as I crash out during Netflix. But it's been a remarkable experience. And I, somebody asked me to tell my story about four years ago, and that became a podcast and a, a, a journalism career and a 
writing a book and a Netflix documentary on the war on drugs and now going around the world speaking about cannabis, investing in it, legal, legalization strategies, and helping mothers with sick kids, kids with sick parents, and people, and making them understand. My dream, my legacy is to replace most narcotics, SSRIs, and opiates with some member of the cannabinoid family or a combination thereof. So that is my mission right now, my friend. While I, I still do legal work to pay the bills, what I want to do full-time is advocacy and help in that direction. Wow. All right. So you said a lot of stuff there. Um, let's back up for a second. Um, so 1990 was your first, your first accident, or that was your third? Your third no, that, your was first. Num- that was number one when I when uh, yeah, right. walking. That was oh, the second. Right. Right. And a third of your bones were broken. Yeah, between a third and a fourth. Um, it was so bad, you know, when you get that broken, they can't really even cast you. I had a body cast for a while, but it just sucked overall, you know. So how long were you in the hospital and what was the recovery like? It, it was horrible. You know, I was uh, I had a big athletic body. I, actually, I, I survived because I was tall. Um, uh, SUV hit me instead of a small car. So I being tall, it hit me on the hip and lifted me up instead mm-hmm. of knocking me down and running me over. So I landed on his windshield. Um, wow. th- that would have been only about 30% of the damage. But then, as you can imagine, um, he screeched to a halt and then threw me. <laughs> and that, oh. did the, that did the other side of my body. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, that all began in 1990. Um, and that's when the pills began. Okay. And then... You got mugged and re- got re-injured again. Yeah, that and was uh, five years later. You know, who knew that Brentwood was becoming the, uh, the uh, carjacking capital of the world? I didn't even have an expensive car. I think it was a new Jeep at the time. And uh, yeah, just two, uh, two elderly kids. I say kids, they were probably in their early 20s. You know, uh, gangster-like um, at a stop sign, I had a gun on my forehead and, uh, you know, told to get out, took my wallet, slapped me around a bit, which I just took because I wanted to live. And uh, mm-hmm. I actually, I'm not a religious guy, but I had a momentary conversation with God saying, listen, dude, you didn't make me go through the last two years of pain and suffering and learning how to walk to die this way. Um, so fortunately, he listened. <laughs> yeah, well, so did they not think you were going to walk again? Uh, well, no. I mean, round one, um, my legs didn't move for two weeks. So, yeah, it was the scariest time of my life. One of the wow. scariest for 15 days, no movement below the waist. Um, to go to the bathroom, a nurse came and, and, and held my, my uh, penis into a rubber glove. Um, and uh, I was scared shitless. Um, and on day 15, um, my big toe on my right foot moved. And uh, that was one of the happiest days of my life. Wow. I can't even imagine. All right. So 1990, first accident, third of your, your bones are broken. Then two years later, you get mugged and re-injure a lot of, you know, yourself again. Uh, and then the third time, you get into an accident 
And talk, tell me a little bit more detail about that third injury again. Yeah, that you know, that's just you and me going out to dinner. You're my passenger, and we're just having a conversation, rocking out to the music. And you have one of those nightmare experiences where you look in your rearview mirror and you see a car approaching and saying, please, God, stop. And there's nothing you can do. Nothing. Um, and then there's a collision and you're in shock. So you don't realize what's really happened. You think you're okay. There's no blood. There's no gore. The passenger is in reasonably good shape, um, but you can't move. And, um, you know, that was that was pretty traumatic. And, you know, I think outside of the physical injuries, um, the emotional injuries were very difficult. I still have a degree of PTSD where I wake up in the night and see a car coming and, mm. you know, um, it's not fun. It, PTSD is a real thing. And you're, and you're like, here we go again, everything yeah. injured again, back to the hospital, more pills. Yeah. More pills, continued pills. And, you know, I think it would, things happen for a reason. You know, I was, a marriage was falling apart. Um, I, it was, so it was a catalyst for a change in all directions. Um, st started divorce as soon as I could get out of bed. Um, decided to no longer work on Wall Street because while I made some cash, it was nothing I ever liked to do. And I suddenly, for the first time, had a real passion to do something. And I didn't care about what I made or if I made. I just wanted to be involved in this work. Mm. So talk to me a bit again about that moment when, when you, you know, the tears are coming down your face without even knowing it um, for the first time of not feeling pain without having to take a pill. Um, you know, I, I would suggest that I'm not sure that there are any real adjectives. I mean, I still get goosebumps when I share the story. I, I, I don't share it often. Um, it's public. You know, I, I do talk about it if people want to know, but I don't wear it like a badge of honor. It's not something you want to say that I'm a survivor and get applause for that, right? Um, but the absence of something, you know, we, we're, we usually think in terms of getting something, mm -hmm. not losing something. Mm -hmm. But when you get something, it's really easy to recognize. You know, you get a sharp pain, you get a chronic pain. Somebody slaps you across the face. Somebody's unkind to you or disrespectful, you know it right away. But absence of something makes you think about it a little more. It's almost like you have to do a double take to realize it's no longer there. You know what I mean? Because so, you've been living with it for so long at that point, right? Yeah, it was. I was like, uh, you know, like a computer chip, just programmed. Even that, you know, I, I imagine that there was even phantom pain. Like when you lose a limb, you still feel pain. So the sharp pain was gone, I, but I, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I just, it, it seemed crazy to me that this compound existed. At that point, I didn't even know what a cannabinoid was. I didn't know, I was so naive. I didn't know that you could put cannabis into your body other than by smoking it. And that's not something I wanted to do. I was definitely a, a, a nerdy jock from Ohio. Mm. Um, and, uh, my God, that would have disappointed my parents if I smoked. So, but <laughs> how great is it that one of the new best times in my life was teaching my 91 and 92 year old parents how to vape <laughs> and getting them off a number of pills as a result. 
they live in a uh, elderly community in Laguna called Laguna Woods. There's 17,000 people the age of 65 to 111. And my mother's Mahjong group of nine, 10 women, age range is 85 to 110. And once a month, I go down there with a goodie bag of edibles and see some, a lot of elderly women in any degree of chronic pain symptoms, and an hour later, smiling and giggling, and it's just wonderful. Wow. So now this has become like your, your mission, your passion. I mean, I, I, you talk about the physical pain that you didn't feel, but I imagine that there's got to be some emotional and mental healing that took place when you discovered this new solution to your, to your pain as well. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, I wanted to bring that up. I, I want to suggest that in many cases, the internal pain is a lot greater than the external pain. But we as human beings only recognize the external pain. You know, so if somebody is emotionally disabled, um, you may get angry at them, right? Because they're not in a wheelchair. And I've learned to see all people with any kind of pain as being in that wheelchair. It's sort of a paradigm shift. I was wrecked emotionally, um, traumatized, you know, probably a decade of therapy, um, uh, a number of years of not wanting to wake up. You know, I started as a you know good shape, an athlete, 220 pounds. You know, shriveled to about 175. Couldn't really work out mm. with other than two or three pound dumbbells, and uh, was limping around. You know, if I went from wheelchair crutches to a cane for many many years, and uh, it was uh, you know relative to what so many others go through, minimal. But for me, who the most I ever had was wisdom teeth pulled and a few broken fingers, it was very traumatizing. So tell, so tell me now, after that experience and the, the kind of healing that took place you know, from that, you know, when did you get in, involved in, in your work now that you, you know, are so passionate about? Uh, I would say within a couple of months, Somebody asked me to tell my story for a nonprofit group. It was small, maybe 50 to 100 people. Um, it, it went well. It was emotional. Um, I was vulnerable. And uh, it was a great experience for me. And from that came a few more with bigger audiences. And from that came um, an opportunity to help create um, an expanded cannabis section in the LA Weekly where I now oversee content and write. Um, it led to um, one of the first um, podcasts in the space called the Cannabis Business Hour, which will be relaunched in September as Cannabis Business Conversations, where I uh, have a dialogue globally with thought leaders, whether they're advocates or moms, dads, um, leaders, CEOs, entrepreneurs, investors, um, government officials. And it's been, you know, very um, uh, rewarding doing that. As well, you know, I started getting involved in the business of cannabis, um, where most states and countries, once there is a legalization process, they have some type of conference. 
they need people to put those conferences together, put the agenda together, bring the professionals. And I've become one of those people. Um, I never imagined um, cannabis would get me places, but last year it got me to 23 countries. Um, Pretty mind boggling. Yeah. Where I hosted, emceed or talked at international conferences, medical cannabis conferences around the world. Are they doing any virtual events now, considering the, the times and what's up? Yeah, doing like? quite a few, but you know how it is. It's just not the same. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, how do you compare getting on a plane and hosting the first conference in South Africa versus doing it on a phone? You know, yeah. um, night and day, it, you know, we have to do it um, for safety. Um, the conference circuit is supposed to start again in September, but I'm not convinced. I'm not sure that you know, other than ultra right Trump supporters are going to want to be sitting, you know, three or four feet from each other in a crowded room. I hope so. I look forward to that because I love the energy. I love meeting new people from around the world. I love helping new people from around the world, but I'm not sure if things will go back. And if they do, I think it's going to be quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, Before I let you go, um, it's been really great getting to know your story and really appreciate you coming on here. Tell people a little bit more, anything else that you want to let them know, uh, any, how they can connect with you online if they have questions or anything else that you're working on that you want to let people know about. Sure. Well, thank you very much. Um, first thing I'll say is what I, you know, I just told my daughter who graduated high school and is going on. And, you know, unlike our generation where you worked to survive and, support your family, pay the bills. It's a new generation of working for passion and cause. And I wish that was there for me. Mm. Um, Because unfortunately, now I've realized that most of my life, I didn't have a passion about my job. And now I'm trying to shove all that passion in in the last quarter of my life. So the first thing I would say, no matter what, find your passion, and then put that Venn diagram up on the wall to figure out how that intersects with some business position. Um, As far as connecting with me, um, LA Weekly Online, we have about 10 million monthly views. You just go to the scroll down menu of cannabis. We have a full cannabis section uh, where I oversee the content. Um, I'm also a syndicator writer with Benziga, Microsoft, Yahoo Finance, Morningstar, a number of others. You can just Google me for stories or follow me on LinkedIn. Um, if you ever, if you want to reach me, um, email is either michael at laweekly.com or michael at millerlawla.com. And, um, I'm always there to help or mentor or assist somebody in need. Awesome. Thanks so much, Michael. Really appreciate it. If you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe, share with your friends, and we're listening for your feedback. The show is all about you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sessions by Monster Chats, presented to you by Monster VoIP. Monster VoIP started, frankly, because we were sick and tired of getting gouged on our business phone bill and getting dropped calls all of the time. Today, Monster VoIP serves over 6,000 customers and is passionate about saving businesses money and giving them the features that they need in a modern tech stack for today's companies. 
Text TRIAL to 424-378-6966 to get your free trial of Monster Boy.